0: We're going to do what we had said a couple weeks ago. Uh, Before we dive into tonight, we're going to spend just a few moments in prayer. And uh, I just want to remind you, there's uh, the last two weeks, I've given you two sets of three things. (laughs) Uh, Each week, really do want us to pray three simple things as we think about about ministry. One is that God would continue to work His work of revival in our church family, that we would be responsive to the Spirit's moving, to the Spirit's stirring, obedient to Him. Two is that, uh, that there would be a, a, an awakening in our community, a spiritual awakening by those in our community who do not know the Lord to begin to sense and hear the, the conviction and prompting of the Holy Spirit. And there would be open doors for us to proclaim the gospel and that there would be salvation in our community. Uh, third is that we do be faithful to what scripture has called us to do, which is to pray for wisdom, for justice, for truth, uh, for favor with our governing officials. And uh, yet again, we're, we're back all of a sudden today. The lead news is I'm not joking. Putin will launch a nuke. Don't test us. So understand, church family, whether you like or don't like the leadership we have, if our leadership makes a foolhardy decision and we've not actually been faithful to pray, I do think some of that is on us because scripture commands us to pray for our leadership, whether we like it or not. When Paul wrote that command, he wasn't asking someone to pray for a president you did or didn't vote for. He was asking them to pray for a ruthless dictator named Nero they had no choice with. So we are in a much more privileged position than that from a human standpoint. So we want us to pray in those three categories? And of course, uh, last week told you three challenges the church is facing. We want to pray for God's plan, direction, and wisdom and provision on how we address the debt, how we address Uh, being a split campus and uh, what his solution is to what I've labeled the Ben conundrum in honor of our beloved Ben Prater, who is in Aggieland now doing stuff with college kids. So I'm gonna give you a few minutes. If you'd be willing one person to start at the table to pray aloud, pray as you're led at the table. And then uh, here in a few moments, I will close us out as a group and we'll move into Bible study. So I'll turn it to you at the tables to pray or you online watching at home to pray. Father, we, uh, we recognize that there is a lot going on at any given moment in our world. Things now move at a faster pace than any of us are wired or qualified to keep up with. And uh, Lord, we just acknowledge both in our community, our local community, God, in our state, in our country, in our world, there is a lot of brokenness and a desperate need for your healing touch. And so we do ask continually, Lord, for revival in our hearts, for awakening in this community, that we would see your gospel move and save as it always has. And she would grant our leaders wisdom and that they would receive your wisdom in humility. God, tonight as we come to your word, as we walk through it, open our eyes, grow us. May we be filled with a greater awe and wonder for who you are. May we leave this place with a deeper affection for you and for your people. It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, I know we're a little down tonight, and I would say that's because of what we're going to talk about, but I never told anybody what we were going to talk about, so it can't be that. Uh, but what we're going to talk about tonight, uh, it, Rob, if you will, we're going we're to, well, don't turn it yet. We're going to jump back. I know we just finished the Old Testament, but before we jump to the New, I want to just uh, somewhat keep it fresh. But actually, as I as process this, I think this will help us as we go through the New Testament. Uh, we're going to walk through a couple of weeks back in a worldview category, and, and really the worldview category of, of Christian philosophy. Now, before you get scared by philosophy, just hold on. You're going to be fine. Uh, remember, philosophy literally just means the love of wisdom. So if you would love to be wise, don't be afraid of philosophy. Um, but from there, and, and I'll tell you where we're going to end, we're, then we're going to spend a couple of weeks having a lot of fun unpacking uh, the fact that uh, as a believer with a biblically based worldview of philosophy, we acknowledge both the seen and the unseen, which means we need to make sure we really understand what Scripture says about heaven and hell about angels and demons, and about the nature of the spiritual war that we are fighting as believers. So that's where we're going for a few weeks. But tonight, this is where we're going to start. Rob, if you would throw the next slide up on the screen. We're going to start with flash issue number 123. And some of you are going, I can't believe Pastor put that up there. And some of you are going, I never thought I'd see the day in a church when he'd throw a comic book cover up there. The flash number 123 over here on, uh, on your left, here's why I put that up. That actually came out 61 years ago this month. And the other one, uh, the Justice League of America number 21, came out 59 years ago last month, if I I remember correctly. Now, here's how I put this up. In the world of comics, you had, when Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern first came out in the Golden Age, those World War II years and early 50s, you had a series of stories. And then those kind of waned in the 50s, and so what what they did is they reinvented some of those characters. They reinvented, instead of... uh, Instead of uh, Jay Garrick being the Flash, now Barry Allen's the Flash. And you have all this. And so they had this problem, though. You got people reading and they're going, wait a minute. Who's really the Flash? And, and which stories? Because this Flash doesn't know the, what's going on. And so they came up with this super creative idea in Flash issue number 123. They came up with the idea of the multiverse. The idea that there are multiple different universes similar. And so all of these stories from the golden age did happen. But the reason no one knows in this over here is because they're on two parallel worlds. And in that issue, that's is the flash can go so fast, he's able to bridge the gap and they meet it. And then over here in Justice League, this is when all the heroes begin to cross over from deal to deal. Now, if, if you keep up, and you don't have to, if you keep up with current superhero stuff, this is the rage of all the movies and TV shows right now in superhero world. The multiverse, the big Spider-Man movie that came out last year. If you watched it, you're going to be confused if you're not in the know because it has the current guy playing Spider-Man, it has the guy before him playing Spider-Man, and it has the guy way back in 2002 playing Spider-Man. None of whom are in, but it's all this identity. you go, Pastor, what on earth are you bringing up stuff about the multiverse? And, and, and superhero stuff and fantasy, here's why I bring this up. Because unbeknownst maybe to you, is that the theory of multiverse of there being multiple universes of various levels of similarity or difference is actually such a prominent theory in science that the late esteemed atheist scientist Stephen Hawking that was his final paper is the idea that we live in a multiverse, that our universe, which exhibits this seeming fine-tuned reality, which is so precise and so necessary, and if you go back to one of our series in the spring, I even throw out some of those stats, and all of the stats say the universe we have that enables human life is statistically impossible to exist by chance unless you have infinite number of other universes in which expands your ability to have chances for it to happen. And so this idea, as far-fetched as goofy as this is, this is an actual real idea that scientists are pitching and throwing around as to how we got the universe. Now, how does that tie to philosophy? Because the discussion of what is real and what is true and what is life's purpose and the design, and the structure, and the origin of the universe, all of that fits under the category of philosophy. And if we're going to have a biblical worldview, we're going to have to know what Scripture says regarding what is is biblical philosophy. In fact, Colossians chapter 2, which in some places has been taken as a reason for Christians to avoid the philosophy, the discipline of philosophy. Listen to what it says, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, "...see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy..." And if you stop there, you go, Pastor, philosophy's bad, but Scripture doesn't stop there, so we can't stop there. "...see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception that are in accordance with human tradition..." With the elementary principles of the world, rather than in accordance with Christ, which tells you there is philosophy that is driven by the logic, reasoning, and experiences of man, which are in line with the demonic powers, the elementary principles of the world. And there is philosophy, which is in line with Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to try to unpack tonight. Now, on your paper, I have given you your cheat sheet. I have tried to just give you some basic basic categories and definitions. And honestly, I don't care. Most of you are probably never going to hear those things brought up, but I give them to you in case you ever do. Because you never know who you're going to get in a conversation with. When I was taking trigonometry in high school, I thought, I'm just getting through the class and I'll never have to deal with it again. And then God dropped a guy who was lost with an IQ of 195 into my life in college. And you know what he wanted to talk about for fun? Trigonometry. Okay? So you never know what you're going to need and when you're going to need it for the sake of Christ. Now, here's what you've got. Basic terms. When you think of philosophy, it, it's going to look at a couple basic branches. One would be metaphysics. That's that's the, the seeking to understand the nature of reality. So the question of what is real? Where did it come from? What is it made of? Kind of questions it it, it proceeds. There's other branches that come off of that. The idea of, and this is not on your paper because I, I don't think you need to remember it as much, but ontology. What is What does it mean to exist, to be? Cosmology, where did did the origin, the structure, the nature of the universe come from, which would lead you to teleology? What's the purpose? Why is it here? Epistemology is the study of what is knowledge? What is truth? How can we know it? What makes something rational for us to believe or not believe it? And in here, if if you're a history student, maybe if you took world history back in there, you remember that period of history where you talked about the... uh, the British empiricists, I believe, and the continental rationalists. I, never, I, I For sure, that was in my history books, every single world history book. Uh, if it wasn't in yours, that's all right. Um, but that whole battle philosophically, that falls under epistemology. What, what is true and how do you know it? A rationalist would say that what is true is that which can be gained by means of reason. Gained by means of reason, it means we're going to rely on, on human thinking and intuition and, and the idea that when you and I are born, there are certain ideas, certain truths that are innate, innately wired in us and, and that we're predisposed to. Versus empiricism, which says that, that experience is the source of knowledge and, and that we can't trust our intuition, our intuition may be flawed, and we're born as a blank slate And then based on what environment we're born into, we are conditioned different ways. And when you hear experience, we don't mean so much emotional experience. The empiricists are those who would say that what is true can be understood through our senses, through what we can see and hear and touch and smell, things that we can take the scientific method of hypothesis and observation and experimentation and further observation That process, we can place it on uh, what's true, how do we get there? And when you're talking about truth, there's a variety of, of different theories out there today and have been for hundreds of years debated. Well, how do you know something's true? Is it because it corresponds? Meaning that there's something is object, objectively exist as a fact. And if I say snow is white, it's because objectively snow is the color white. Or is it true because it coheres, meaning something is true if it coheres with other statements and is consistent? That may sound real good initially, but what if being consistent is everything, all the statements that are consistent are all lies? How does that hold up? Is it pragmatism? That which is true is that which works. That which brings about the right results and understand pragmatism would be challenged in court because if, if truth is based on what brings about the right result and the right result is for me to get off scotch-free. So I lie in court, court court and commit perjury. Well, it can't be perjury if truth is just what works. If the lie got me off the hook, then that worked. It's true. How do we define what is true? Obviously, there's other ideas today, Chief of which is truth is relative. It's true for you, it's true for you, it's true for me, it's true for me. And then the third aspect would be what we call the mind-body problem. Are you and I as human beings just beings of sheer matter? Or, Or is there some part of us, obviously we understand we're physical beings, is there some part of us that's not physical? Whether you want to call it the mind, the soul, the spirit, well, you can use whatever words you want to throw to it. In culture, is there some part? And and how do we, how do we respond to that? Now, there's basic positions out there, and I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go through in any kind of detail tonight. I want us to spend most of our time in the scriptures, and so I may reference back to what the pri- primary views. But if you'll go back, and I don't expect you to remember because a lot of life's happened since then, but there are. Uh, really four other primary worldviews in our society as Americans today. Be secular humanism, be Marxism, be, if you want to call it cosmic humanism or new age or new age spirituality, uh, heavily influenced by Eastern religion and mysticism and and ideas from there. And then there's postmodernism. And all of these have views in this. Chief for the humanist and the Marxist is the idea of naturalism the assumption, and it starts with an assumption, nothing other than that which is material exists. So if the only thing that exists, the supreme reality of existence is just the physical universe, then it means every other question you ask has to be subservient to that. But understand they make that assumption because no one's ever proved only the physical universe exists. New age spirituality would get in pretty crazy uh, in terms of, <laughs> that's why we're not going to linger here, the physical is an illusion. We are all just manifestations of the divine spirit, and the goal is to escape the illusion of physicality. Not only that, but everything has a spirit. And before you go, Wes, that sounds wacky. We, we would never run into that unless you went down to some crazy street in downtown Austin. False. Go watch Pocahontas, the animated Disney classic, Colors of the Wind. Listen to the lyrics. Talking to John Smith, you think the earth is just a dead thing you can claim, but I know that every rock and tree and creature has a life, has a spirit, has a name. That's the new age worldview. Back in 1996 in a kid's movie to a song that's really catchy, if you're honest. Postmodernism would would, <laughs> would be this. Yeah, physical reality is real, but the truth is, we, there aren't absolutes, and, and even if there are, we can't know them. You go, well, we'll, we'll get into that more later. All of these, by the way, uh, are, uh, are, especially postmodernism and humanism and Marxism, are extremely set against the Christian understanding, which would be that of supernaturalism. That, we see, we, uh, that when it comes to these conversations of philosophy, we understand that faith and reason are not in opposition. They go hand in hand. We understand that there is seen and unseen. And so uh, we're gonna try to do this in, in a couple simple questions tonight. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna read, I'm gonna turn there. You've got all of the scriptures that I'm gonna use. At least I think that I'm gonna use. You have all of them on your paper. So if I move a little quick, Forgive me, it's just I want to I be respectful of what our time is tonight. Listen, listen to Jesus before Pontius Pilate in John chapter 18. Pontius asks him a question, Jesus answers in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. I'll just point out something, isn't it interesting? His interest? My kingdom's not from this world? It's not of this realm, which would seem to imply there's another world, another realm. Just lock that in your minds, so we'll get to that later. Therefore, Pontius Pilate said, so you're a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly, I am a king. For this purpose, I have been born. For this purpose, I have come into this world. What purpose? Listen, he says, to testify to the truth. Why did Jesus show up 2,000 years ago? To witness, to testify, to clearly reveal truth. Keep that locked away. And Pilate then said to him the million dollar question, what is truth? What is truth? That's what we're trying to answer tonight. And here's what we see all throughout. One, even in Jesus' answer there, we see that truth is something objective. If he's going to testify to truth, Then that means a couple things. One, it would imply we don't know truth correctly because we need someone to testify to it. It would also imply that we don't get to determine what truth is because he's telling us what truth is. There's an objectivity to it. Not only that, but he makes the statement in here, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, which implies there will be those who don't listen to his voice. So even though truth is objective, even though truth is something that needs to be revealed to us as humans, that doesn't mean that just because it's clear, objective, and true, that we're going to respond to it. Keep that locked away as well. What is truth? Now, there's three things when you walk through Scripture that you're going to see about truth. It's objective, objective, it's absolute, and it's personal, uh, uh let me read you Matthew chapter five. This is in the Sermon on the Mount and, and Jesus does this several times. He says, "You have heard, and the ancients were to- that the ancients were told you shall not murder, and whoever commits murder shall be answerable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be answerable to the court. And he goes on from there. And you will see this verse seven, you have heard, And he quotes scripture, but I tell you, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is saying, you have heard people tell you things about this scripture, but I'm gonna correct what you've heard, which implies truth is objective as opposed to relative. If you've had all these different rabbis teaching, well, you know, uh, synagogue family, it's uh, the, the the fourth commandment says, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Well, here's what this means. And I proceed to tell you, my interpretation of what it means and all the additional things I'm going to add to what it means, just like the Pharisees did in all of this. Jesus says, hold up a second. You've heard it said this. Let me set the record straight. Not you've heard it said this. And you know, that's true for that rabbi, but let me tell you what's true for me. That's not what he says. He says, you've heard this. Let me tell you what's actually true. This is one of many places. Scripture just assumes that truth is objective. Nowhere in Scripture do you ever see God going, well, I mean, think about all the Old Testament we looked at. Well, I know, Israel, that you think Baal's God, and that's your truth, so I'm gonna honor your truth while I also honor my truth that I'm the only God of the universe. You don't ever see nonsense like that with God. Never. You never see God say, do not commit sexual immorality. Oh, but if that works for you, If that works for you to have pleasure and feels good, that's true for you. And so we'll just, you can't. Truth is always presented in scripture and every pocket of scripture as objective as something that does not depend upon your opinion, my opinion, or our circumstances. It's objective. And this is the idea, by the way, those theories of truth, we would hold to the correspondence theory of truth. That something is true If you and I say something, it's either true or false based on how it corresponds to that which is objectively true, which objectively exists. So the statement, God is real, is either true or false based on God being real, which has nothing to do with our opinion as human beings. So truth is objective. Truth is absolute. Uh, We saw this just a couple weeks ago in the book of James. When James is writing and he's telling them, he tells them for every good and perfect thing is from, a gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Well, that application that God does not change. And since God is the one who, and we'll see in a second is truth. That means by default, truth doesn't change. Something cannot be true then, but not true now. Not in terms of truth with a capital T. Now, if you want to say, well, it's true that yesterday was hot and today was blazing hot. Well, we're not talking about absolute truth there. We're talking about what was the weather. But it is absolutely true to say that yesterday was hot. And it's equally true to say today was hot, because guess what? It was. Because it's Texas and it's third summer truth does not change. It is absolute. By absolutely means what is true is true for all people at all times in all places. That's what absolute truth means. Something is true and absolutely true. It's true for every person at every time in any place. And by the way, preview where we're going, since we understand as Christians, philosophically, there is both the seen realm and the unseen realm. That means what is true is true for every creature at every time. And when we say every place, we don't just mean this known universe. We also mean the spiritual realm too. The truth that God is God, the truth that Jesus is the Christ, that is not just true for you and I as human beings today. It's true for for Abraham back thousands of years before Christ. It's also true for every one of the demons in the spiritual realms because it's absolutely true. Truth is absolute. And just a side note of application, it's interesting that to make a statement that God does not change, which implies if God doesn't change, truth doesn't change. It's interesting that that falls in a section to a group of people who are falling under trial, because typically where the greatest danger for us to begin to doubt truth is when we're facing hardship and trial that we can't seem to square with what we think about God. And then we begin to suck down the path of the little lies that Satan and culture whispers. The so truth is, truth is objective, truth is absolu- absolute, truth is personal. Um, I'm sure anybody who grew up in a good Southern Baptist church, RA's GA's Vacation Bible School, you know this verse. And I don't know why I'm even turning there because I can quote it. Jesus said, "I am the way, I am the truth." Truth is personal. By personal, I don't mean it's personally subjective. What I mean is truth is not something that exists outside of God. God is truth. And God is a person. Jesus didn't say, I I, I correspond to truth. I mean, he does correspond to truth, but he corresponds to the truth that he is truth. Truth is a person. It means if something is absolutely true, it's not just absolutely true because Jesus said it's true, it's absolutely true because he is true. When he said, I came to testify about the truth, it means I came to testify about me. I am the truth. Jesus is the truth. It means when we talk about, uh, is it true that God, God God is not pleased by sexual immorality? Yes, why? Because it's in line with God's character with his person, with who he is. And there's all sorts of implications for this. It means that truth isn't something impersonal, but, but personal. It means that truth is knowable. You can know a person. Not only that, but all of scripture testifies about a person who is truth, who wants us to know him. You can know truth. So I just want to make the statement, the truth can set you free, not only this, but when we choose to ignore truth, when we choose to push back on truth, we're not just resisting a fact, we're committing a personal affront. Because we're not rejecting just an axiom of geometry, we're rejecting God. So what what, what is truth? Scripturally speaking, truth is absolute. Truth is objective. Truth is personal. This is what truth is. What is truth? Maybe the better is who is truth? Jesus is truth. Anything that is true. You want to know why two plus two equals four? Because in the mind of God, when he created the universe, he made it to where two plus two equals four. Think about passages like Christ upholds all creation by the word of his power. And we looked at this in the spring. We see that upholding through the laws of gravity the laws of mathematics. This is what the scientists of old, they thought, let's, let's pursue. God gave us a world that, that, that you can find and experiment and discover truth on because there's aspects that he put. We can understand the heart and mind of God as we look throughout. That's what drove the scientists of old, by the way of which their discoveries have, are the foundation of all modern science. Even the modern science by those who twist science to false truths. So let's keep moving. How do you know truth? Now I'm not gonna spend as much time here because we actually addressed this back in the spring. So this is more of a reminder. Scripture's clear that there's two primary sources of truth in the universe. One is what we call general revelation. Truth that is available to all people at all times and all places. Romans chapter one talks about this, how God in creation has has created and, and left certain aspects of who he is, his divine power, his eternal nature are clearly seen in creation. Not only that, but there is a, some kind of an internal longing and knowledge of God that is, as Ecclesiastes 3 will put, eternity w- w- written on the, hearts of, on the hearts of humans. So there's truth that can be seen in creation. And this forms the basis then for, and this is, this is to tie, tie back to both empiricism and rationalism. We as believers, we would affirm that there is truth that can be discovered through both experience and science, as well as reasoning. We affirm that. It's in scripture. You want to know how I know that, sh- that we can affirm that what you see, what you touch, what you it can testify to truth? Because Jesus showed up to Thomas and said, Thomas, you're doubting. Touch me. That's empiricism at its finest. Touch me. There's things we can reason as people work, listen, we got to the moon and back on less technology and power than in this cell phone using math that was reasoned by human minds made in the image of God, and it all worked because we got there and back, unless you're a crazy conspiracy theorist, in which case the evidence is really strong against you and you should give up. Um, And not every one of those mathematicians and engineers were by any means saved by grace through faith. Which means even the lost mind, there is an aspect of truth, of discovery that could be now. General revelation, we've said this, while you can know a lot of things, it cannot bring you to full knowledge of the saving truth. Why? Well, Romans 1 tells us why, because even that knowledge that is hardwired of God in our hearts, in our own sin, every one of us actively suppress it which also means if you are someone who is lost, you may be smart. You may be the smartest person that's ever lived from an IQ standpoint. You may be the greatest expert of whatever scientific field you are in in terms of just sheer brain power. But our sinfulness, the fact that we are born as a sinner, enslaved to commit acts of sin, That sinfulness breaks our mind, which is why you can have so many unbelievably intelligent people who are scientists and historians and philosophers go down so many false paths and society praise it as truth. It's why those of us who have been saved, who have been given a transformed mind, that is able to actually look at the data of the universe, of science, of philosophy, of whatever other category, engineering, who can look at that, and with a non-broken mind come to things. It's why we as believers ought to be at the forefront of discovery because we're the only ones in this world that can actually process the data correctly. But we gave that up a long time ago and our anti-intellectualism, and our overflow of all of Jesus is about how I feel when I walk out of church, and not about how he transforms my mind to go into my workplace. That's a whole different story. Specific revelation, specific or special revelation is that specific revelation of Jesus Christ and his word. Listen, listen to what 1 John chapter 5, 20, I've forgotten about this verse, as I was looking uh, looking through uh, different instances of truth. listen to this. And we know First John 5:20, we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And in Him who, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God in eternal life. We already saw Jesus say, I come to testify about the truth. Hebrews 1 is one of several places that says, or specifically Hebrews 1 says, Jesus is the final revelation of who God is to humankind. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, the gospel message. It's a response of repentance and faith to him where salvation can come by grace and save us. It's that that ultimately brings and enables us to know truth, both Jesus, the person truth, and all the truth he's created in all the universe. And you say, well, Jesus doesn't stand in front of us. No, but he gave us his word of truth. We use that phrase the last several Sundays in James where he says, you've been brought forth by the word of what? Truth. Why is the Bible true Because it's the accurate words recorded from God Himself. Well, why are God's words true? Because they correspond to Him and reflect Him who is true. Now, again, that's provided. It's the original manuscripts. Oh, we don't have the original manuscripts, no, but we know what the original manuscripts say and whether or not you and I have a good, solid translation of them. That's why it's important you have a good translation. If you have a bad translation, be wary. So this is how we know truth. How do we know truth? Generally, there's ways we know truth, and then specifically we know truth. And by the way, then, as believers, secondary, Jesus Christ, the Bible, also third person the Trinity, Holy Spirit, living inside of us, whose job is to convict us of the truth and remind us of the truth and empower us for the truth, which is all the more reason why we ought to be at the forefront as believers in these things. Okay, I can't say more there. Got to keep moving. How do we respond to truth? How do we respond to truth? And I gave you several things there, and um, I'm not going to unpack all of them in full, but how do we respond to truth? Well, all throughout Scripture, what's Hebrews 11, 1 say? Now, faith is this, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. All throughout Scripture, uh, the, the, the Jews come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, tell us what the work of God, what work must we do to be saved? Which, you catch the irony, no work we can do can save us, but Jesus Word playing goes, this is the work of God, that you faith his son whom he has sent. What is our response to be to truth? What is the response to be to truth? It's to accept it as true and rest on it, which is another word biblically called faith. It's faith. Now I wanna be clear here. You notice on your page, biblical faith. I say that because faith in English typically means Hey, the Aggie's going to win this weekend. Hey, the Longhorn's going to win this weekend. I sure think so. I've got faith, which is really, I've got wishful thinking. And I mean, I'm not even trying to make a joke, but that's how we typically use faith. I've got wishful thinking. This is Indiana Jones in the leap of faith in the last crusade. The clue says, take a leap of faith. And he goes, closes his eyes, stick his foot out, and he hopes something will be there, but he does not sure. And unfortunately, that's how most of the time we as believers think faith is. Well, I'm not totally sure if this is true, but I just got to take that leap of faith. No, a leap of faith will not save you. A response of faith in truth will bring God's grace about in your life to save you. Faith is this. Biblical faith is when you rest the totality of your being on that which is true. Why is it true? Because it's a reflection of God and God said it's true. When you rest the entirety of your being on His truth confidently, and I don't mean confidence in terms of how you feel on any given day. I mean the fact that not a one of you in this room that I'm aware of walked in this room today and went, "Hmm, here's this chair. I'm gonna inspect it. I'm gonna check detect the screws. Hey, can not a cut bear? Can I have like a seat bearer come check it out? You didn't do it." How do you know that I didn't come in and loosen the screws so someone would fall to the ground? You don't know how that chair's been through. You don't know if it's structurally sound. You just walked in, you saw that chair and you made a faith response to go, I will put the total weight of my body on this chair to keep me from crashing to the ground. Every one of you is exhibiting a type of faith right now in your chair. In fact, the only one in this room actively, there's three of us in this room who are actively are actually doing any work to resist the force of gravity. Me and the two booth guys. The rest of you in this room, that chair's doing all the work for you, which is what, when it comes to being right in God's eyes, we don't do any work. We rest in the chair of Christ, who he says he is and what he said he did. I've never seen Jesus face to face and I certainly didn't, I'm not an eyewitness to any of his acts, but I've been told and the evidence all backs up that he is who he says he is and he did what he said he did. And so when I respond to that in faith, that's our response to truth. So when Jesus says, even as a believer, do not be afraid. I have to make a choice. Will I trust his word and not be afraid or will I continue to walk in my fear? By the way, so do not be afraid. He doesn't say, don't ever feel afraid. That's a different story. You see in there, biblical worship in truth. Jesus said, there comes a time when the true worshipers will worship in what? In spirit and in truth. Meaning that the only way to truly worship God is to be rightly related to truth and rightly walking in truth. Uh, it's to know that it's, it's to, it's to, Through biblical freedom by truth. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How do you want to know the true freedom of joy and peace in your heart? It's to let the truth set you free. And to abide in that truth. It's to biblically speak the truth in love. Again, time to permit there. So let's get to the, the second aspect of this in our in our last few moments of our time. What is real? Well, if what is true, what is true, we've we've seen that. It's Jesus, and it's personal and objective and absolute and And here's how we know it's true, general revelation, special level, what is real? Well, now we're in a position to look at what's real because we now know that this is truth and we can trust it and our response should be to accept it as it is, as God means it to be understood and we can open it up and go, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's real? The heavens and the earth. What's real? God, what's real? Listen to how John 1 says, Uh, John, uh, the gospel of John chapter one spits out the creation narrative, but through a uh, more of a theological viewpoint. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. Speaking of Jesus, in the beginning, he was with God. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and life was the light of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not grasp it. What is real? What does scripture say right off the back? That's real. It assumes that the physical creation is real, that it's tangible. We find there that the, that the universe has a beginning, that God, God exists before creation. And that's angelic and human, by the way. Colossians will say Jesus created both the spiritual realm and the physical realm. It says that life comes from the one who is life. It says that the mind of God thought and planned and spoke and created before we ever exist. It implies an order. What's real? Creation is real. This is the basis too of Genesis, further on in Genesis chapter one, when God creates man and woman, and he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He gives them two commands. There's a family command, grow, multiply. I've given you this physical creation. This is, remember, before the fall even. I've given you this physical creation. Have kids who have kids, build family. But not only that, I want you to subdue this earth. I want you to fill it. I want you to take governance over it. I want you to, and we would call this in theological circles, the cultural mandate. I want you to make culture. I want you to figure out how to take silicon powder and make microchips. I want you to figure out on less power, than can run a vacuum, how to power up the command module and get three men home. I want you to figure out I want you, and unfortunately, church family, in the last several hundred years, we have struggled with this as believers. Or it's like our spiritual life is this emotional thing that has to do internally, but it doesn't impact. Listen, we've got to produce children who who, when we help them think about school and vocation and calling, that they go, wow, God, look at this whole world you've given to to learn and to create and to subdue and to multiply. And and how do you want me to step into that to, to see and understand just a snippet of your glory and help advance culture? That is biblical. Now, not sinful culture, but just society. I put it to you this way it ought to be a believer who one day figures out the cure for cancer because they are so driven to understand God's creation and what can be done this is the basis for it all which means this philosophically we are realists we believe that there is such a thing as objective reality that exists regardless of what you and I think like there was a joke a couple of years ago of Finland is a myth and I never really understood it and you're gonna go what yes I said the same it was big in the college world it's like It's like the first time I ever had a conversation with a true blue flat earther who believes the earth is flat. Threw me for a loop. Finland is a myth. Well, here's the reality, Finland exists. At least the land that makes up Finland, even though I've never seen it. Pluto exists, even though I've never been there. You know why? Because I don't get to determine what is real. God determined that when he made it, which also means this, the physical universe is real. So is the spiritual universe. Now, I'd use the term probably realm. But here's what I mean by that. Scripture says that God created the heavens and there. Scripture says God created the seen and the unseen. God created the angels. Some of those angels rebelled against God. That's what we call demons. And that unseen realm, I can't see it but that unseen realm exists independently of the physical realm. And we'll look at all this in the coming weeks and go, well, show us that we will. That's why we're gonna come back and do all the fun the next couple weeks and make sure we have a biblical understanding of heaven and hell, angels and demons, and not a Looney Tunes understanding of those things. But that unseen realm, though it exists independently from here, can also interact Demonic possession, angelic visitation. The fact that when, and this also leads to another part, you and I live in a physical universe, but when it comes to the mind-body problem, scripture's very clear, we're two-natured beings. Now, I'm not talking about sin-nature-righteous-nature. That's a different, I'm talking about you and I have a physical body according to scripture, and we have an immaterial soul. And that's why death, according to 1 Corinthians, is the great enemy because what physical death does to us is to take what was intended to always exist in a unified harmony and splits our soul from our body, which also means part of the unseen creation is that place that we call heaven, where the souls of those who are righteous in God's eyes go, where God's angels are, where God chooses to to sit on his throne in the fullness of his glory. It also means... And that spiritual realm is the place we would call hell where those who die in their own sin attempting to justify themselves before God temporarily receive the wrath of God until the final hell comes. We are two-natured beings. And here's why this is really important. I mean, you think about why does the Lord say, love the Lord your God. What's the greatest command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your will, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your body. Now, he's not really saying that to try to say we're four-part creatures. He's trying to make a hyperbolic statement of the totality of your person. But in that, you see two clear things. There's a physical, and there's a spiritual side of us. This is why temptation is still temptation. You have been given a brand new nature in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. If you're in Christ, you are no longer enslaved to sin. You are completely freed from enslavement to sin. You are no longer in the kingdom of darkness. You are in the kingdom of light. Well, why is temptation still tempting to me? Because I still live in a fallen body. And there's an interesting harmony between what I experience on a spiritual soul level and what I experience physically. It's why exercise can improve your mood. And it's why grief can cause your body to fall apart because there is a unified harmony there that, that we're also not very good at understanding a lot of times as believers. But here's, just to put this back, when you live in a culture where the prevailing worldview about reality is, all that exists is physical. And that means to a human being a human being is only a clump of matter ruled by cellular processes. Now, that sounds absurd, and you and I both know that none of our teachers who teach evolution are going around, but most of them are not saying that. But that is what the scientists say. That is what the logical conclusion is. And you wonder in part why depression and suicide are so off the charts in our society today because things that in years past, we would normally have said, science can't answer that for you. That's a matter of the soul. We have to turn to the church or even in pagan countries to religion. We've gotta go somewhere else for that because science can't give us the full answer for that. That is not what our society does. And so we as beings who are both body and soul by the way, you always are your soul. You're gonna get separated from your body. We live in a society that does nothing, nothing. In fact, teaches that your soul doesn't exist. You're just a clump of matter. And you go, well, how bad is it? Anybody know the name Clarence Darrow? prosecuting attorney in the Scopes Monkey Trials when evolution was put on the stand back in the 1920s. He's an adamant proponent of secular humanism, who philosophically you see on your cheat sheet is naturalism. Mm -hmm. Listen to what he said. This is is the purpose of man. Whether we say this or not, this this is what The end result of humanism is when this is what predominates our society and teaches our people. God says the purpose of man is to be loved and known by him. To have fulfillment and joy and peace. The purpose of man is like the purpose of the polywog. To wiggle along as far as he can without dying or to hang to life until death takes him. What a hopeless reality. And that ought to break our hearts when we think about even the lost politicians who are saying all sorts of nonsense stuff that makes you want to blood boil. The real reality is those people's worldview is that. They are hopeless. They are hopeless. I'm not saying that injustice shouldn't cause it. It should cause righteous anger. But as ambassadors of heaven, it should also cause unbelievable sorrow. But it should also cause unreal hope because we have the real message. We have the real philosophy that cures the human heart and answers the big questions of life. Which by the way, we're gonna end with this right where we started with the multiverse. Listen to this, it's why we've got to speak truth. The biggest piece of evidence for the multiverse is that life exists, particularly intelligent life, capable of making observations. Certain aspects of our universe seem special and important enough for sustaining life, such as the longevity of stars, the abundance of carbon, the availability of light for photosynthesis, the stable com- of complex, stability of complex nuclei, says this researcher. But all these features are typically not the case when you get a random universe. That would be a universe of Darwin. The multiverse offers one explanation for why all these features are favorable in our universe, which is that other universe exists as well where the odds played out and they didn't happen. In other words, so many things had to line up just right in our universe that the existence of life seemed improbable. And if there was only one universe, it couldn't have life in it. But in a multiverse, there are enough chances for life to appear in at least one. Many scientists have tried to find physical hard evidence for the multiverse's existence, which has to be there for it to be true, according to humanism. But all these types of searches have come up empty. We see all the evidence of design and creation. There's no way it could have gotten here by chance. Multiverse. Listen to Stephen Hawking's research assistant speaking. The mystery was why do we live in this special universe where everything is nicely balanced in order for complexity and life to emerge? He literally just said, the mystery is this. Why do we live in a universe that is perfectly designed for us to exist? We can't explain that. We can't explain what truth is because what we say truth is leads us down this road to determine what's real and what's not. And church family, that's why it's vital we understand and have a biblical worldview philosophically. So that's where we're gonna end for tonight. But understand we're having a lot of fun the next couple of weeks with heaven and hell, angels and demons. What is spiritual warfare? I did that a couple of years ago with our college students. And I was shocked at how much more hungry the adult volunteers were because they were like, we never were taught any of this, please just more. So maybe you already know this stuff, maybe you don't, but we're going to have a good time looking at it because it's all there in scripture and it'll be good. So I appreciate you being here, church family. And let me pray for our time tonight. Father, thank you. As we go out of here, may we know the truth. May we believe the truth. May we worship in the truth. May we know the freedom of the truth and may we speak the truth. May we be people of truth who know what's real and that what's real is more than just what we see around us. That what's real and what matters is more than just what's right in front of us. That there's more going on in any human heart than just what shows up physically because though the physical is real, so is the spiritual and there's real warfare, and there are real demonic forces. There are real people hurting. There are real souls living in a society that have told them they don't exist. Lord, use us. Revive us. Please awaken Pflugerville and Huddo. Please awaken Round Rock, Elgin Taylor, Mayner, Austin. God, please awaken our land that people might respond to you and healing rain might come. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.